0: To celebrate Maine AEYC's 20th anniversary, we've created a 20th anniversary book. In it, we look back at the past 20 years of early childhood advocacy and professional development, and we look ahead to the future of the field in Maine. We celebrate the people who have made Maine AEYC what it is today, recognize 20 current outstanding leaders in the field, and name 20 young teachers to watch. The book is available for purchase on Amazon beginning January 25th. We hope you'll buy a copy, share it with your program or your local policymakers, and continue to spread the word about the importance of early childhood education. We are so honored to have done this work alongside you for the past 20 years, and we look forward to continuing to improve the lives of children, families, and teachers over the next 20. So if you go to our website, MaineAEYC.org, and head to the 20th anniversary page, you will find a link to order the book on Amazon. We hope you love it. Welcome to another episode of 123 All Ears on Me. I'm Kaylena Mills, and I'll be your host. Today's episode will focus on the 2024 legislative session here in Maine, which has already started. We will be joined by Heather Martin, co executive director of Maine AEYC and our policy expert, to talk about the bills that are on the table this session that will affect families, children, and childcare teachers. She will also share ways that you can get involved in strengthening our voice to help improve the field through policy. So if you are a family, a parent, an ally, a teacher, a child care provider, you can raise your voice to help improve the field by advancing these bills. When we return, we will be joined by Heather, who will share everything we need to know heading into this legislative session. 2024 is Maine AEYC's 20th Anniversary, and we want to celebrate with all of you. We are planning a variety of events to bring educators together in joyful community across the state. Every 20th Anniversary event will be fun, hands-on, and playful. And they will all be free or low-cost because you deserve to be celebrated for everything you do for children and families. You deserve to have fun. Our first 20th anniversary celebration is on March 10th at St. Joseph's College in Standish, Maine. Registration is open now, so don't wait. Join us for a lighthearted evening of music and movement with Chrissy Fowler of Belfast Flying Shoes. An early childhood educator herself, Chrissy will lead us in a night of dancing and give us a sense of how we could all lead similar activities in the classroom with our young students. This event is free to attend and all participants will get a one hour certificate for elective training in music and movement in the classroom. You get to play, dance, laugh, and connect with each other while earning professional development hours. You can learn more about this event and others at mainaeyc.org on our 20th anniversary page. Registration is now open for the March event and space is limited, so register today mainaeycorg slash 20th-anniversary That's M-A-I-N-E A-E-Y-C dot org slash 20th-anniversary We can't wait to see you there! Each year, the National Association for the Education of Young Children also known as NACI coordinates the Week of the Young Child Childcare programs, elementary schools, AEYC affiliates, businesses, and more all come together to celebrate young children during this week and bring awareness to their unique needs. It is a time to educate your community, local business leaders, policymakers, congressional delegates, and local officials about the importance of early childhood education. In 2024, the Week of the Young Child will take place from April 6th to April 12th, and we here at Maine AEYC want to help you celebrate. We are offering $5,000 in mini-grants to help child care programs and elementary schools cover the costs of hosting a Week of the Young Child event. If you want to host a Week of the Young Child event in your community, you can find the grant application on our website at mainaeycorg events. In the past, our Week of the Young Child mini-grants have supported events like parades, town festivals, library events, museum events, concerts, and outdoor play days. Applicants for mini-grants can request between $100 and $1,000 for their event. All applications are due by February 23rd, and winners will be announced on February 29th. If you're curious to learn more about the application and what Maine AEYC is looking for, you can also join us for an informational webinar on February 1st. Registration for the webinar and full details about the application can be found on our website at maineayc.org events. So we hope you'll apply for a mini grant and host a Week of the Young Child celebration in your community. We can't wait to hear from you. Well, welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank Um, you for having me. Yeah. So uh, before we get started, I obviously know you. We work together. (laughs) And I'm sure a lot of people listening know you, but could you just start by introducing yourself and, and who you are and what brings you here?
1: Absolutely. My name is Heather Martin. So I'm the co-executive director for the Maine Association for the Education of Young Children. Prior to this, I was the policy director. So working exclusively in policy and advocacy efforts on behalf of the organization. But prior to that, I did teach in the classroom for 20 years. I've taught in both public schools um, and private child care programs, um, all ages. Um, the only age I haven't done is, um, you know, the, the babies. So maybe someday I'll work myself back into the classroom and get to work with the babies.
0: Awesome. Yeah. So since you are the policy guru for Maine AUIC, um, you are the best person to talk to, to find out what is happening now that the legislative session has started for 2024 and, you know, what do educators need to be aware of and, and mm-hmm. what should we be paying attention to? So with that, you know, you, uh, are part of the leadership team for the right for right from the start coalition that does a lot of the child care policy and advocacy. So what, uh, what is right from the start focused on right now?
1: Yeah. So right from the start, um, you know, is a statewide coalition. We have over, you know, 40 partnership organizations, nonprofits, businesses that um, work on part of that coalition to help advance Um, early childhood policy. Um, So every year there's kind of priority legislation we focus on and this year um, because it's a shorter legislative session and I can get into that in a little bit um, we're really trying to um, get the whole bill through that we introduced last legislative session with Senator Troy Jackson. Um, One piece of that bill we did not get through last year um, although we certainly got other significant parts was um, reimbursing Childcare care subsidy based on enrollment and not just attendance. So that's something we're hoping to get through this short session that would help some of the business practices of child care programs as they accept um, the child care subsidy program.
0: And in case someone's listening who's not a provider or doesn't accept subsidy so they don't understand how it works, what does it mean to reimburse subsidy on enrollment versus attendance?
1: Yeah. So when families qualify for subsidy, which helps support them paying for childcare, care, um, child care programs, um, you know, uh, go through um, work with the state to accept subsidy. Um, and so essentially what will happen instead of that parent paying, um, the childcare tuition to the program, the state will pay, you know, either all or a portion depending on that family's income and what their copay might be, um, directly to the childcare program. So those payments come directly from the state, um, with the child, with the childcare subsidy program. And what I will say is now being called the childcare affordability program. So you might hear me shift to that language throughout this interview. So the childcare affordability program, um, Currently um, pays based on certain parameters of attendance so that um, you know there might be days that a child does not come to the program that the program will not get the tuition paid for that day. Um, there's certain rules around what's accepted uh, missed days or absent days, um, depending on there's a number of allocated vacation days, sick days, those type of things. So a program has to track all that attendance. What did happen over um, COVID because we got some federal funds is that the state was actually able to take some of those federal funds and reimburse childcare programs for those children on the child care affordability program, regardless whether child, you know, showed up that day or not, um, especially with things like COVID and extended illnesses that we saw. This was really helpful for programs because if you have a, ch- a child out for multiple days, weeks, and you're not getting paid for that slot. You're still paying the light bills, you're still paying the rent, you're still paying your employees to be there, you're still paying, you know, any benefits and overhead costs you have. So to not be paid for that, you know, um child slot for that day is really harmful for the childcare business.
0: So <clears throat> within certain parameters, the basics are that providers don't get paid if a child is absent for a day. Even yeah, because-
1: yeah, so yeah. We- there's certain acceptances of, of of absences. So you could you could hit a point that you know, for example, one of the things is um, 50 hours of vacation time. So if a childcare program is closed for 50 hours. Um, they can get paid up to those 50 hours. However, if you, most childcare programs are taking a standard two weeks off now of vacation to support their employees, to support their own, you know, uh, I know the program I worked out, it was always, you know, when the deep cleaners would come in and do the carpets and the walls and, you know, really deep clean the centers, um, you know, they might not be getting getting paid for that additional week of of vacation time that the program might be closed for different reasons.
0: Right. And so... And it's not like someone if could fill that slot for just a day, right? They're not making that income from another student. Um, Absolutely. So yeah. they're holding a spot for someone and not getting paid for it. And so that's an right. issue. And so you want to shift that to just paying people based on the number of children that are enrolled
1: with. Yeah, them. Yeah, that spot. And I think, you know, there's some language in there. We talk about enrollment versus attendance. Um, you know, thinking about, what are general private pay practices out in the field? You know, what do our programs charge their private pay families? Um, you know, we I think we've seen, you know, a, a lot of those private pay pa- practices tend to be you're paying for that slot or opportunity for that child. So whether they're there or not, that is their spot that's held for them. Um, Like you said, there's not a wait list where people just pick up an additional kid for the day. There's a lot of things around information about kids you need. So it's a hard, that would be a hard model um, to have just a wait list for a day. Um, But if we can get our subsidy payment practices more in line with these private pay families. It's just a better sustainability business model for the childcare programs. It's going to incentivize more programs to accept the child care affordability program um, dollars and, and be able to work with that because it's really hard to budget. And if you think about even things going on, like these natural disasters, we're having floods, like extreme weather patterns, like programs are starting to have to close for more uh, things that maybe we hadn't in the past seen happen. Um, You know, certainly if you're on the water, a childcare on the waterfront in any of our coastal towns, you know, you've been hit pretty hard. Maybe you've been flooded, you've had to close. What does that mean for your business model if you're not getting paid? Um, And during COVID, you know, we saw that childcare programs that maybe had to close down classrooms because COVID was spreading um, or even close down their whole building for a period of time, you know, Um, I think some some federal rescue dollars did help keep that cost at a minimum to their private pay families, but certainly some of the business operations still required private pay families to pay for that spot. And so, you know, again, because subsidy had some support of federal funds, the subsidy program was also able to do that at that time. But now that program has ended due to the end of those federal support funds. Gotcha. Okay.
0: So that's a big focus of uh, yeah. legislative session this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you also mentioned earlier uh that the legislative session is shorter for 2024. Yes. And and can you talk about that and why that is?
1: Yeah, so um Maine operates on a um biennium. So usually it's it's really around our budget cycle, our two year budget. Um so when we elect our representatives and our senators into their um Positions, we elect them for two years. So the first year they come in is the long session. That's where all kinds of legislation is introduced, any type of legislation. And that's how legislation gets worked through committees, gets adopted, you know, either into our budgets or or funding off the table. And some bills you'll hear are carried over. So that means they didn't make it through the whole process of the uh, long session or they didn't, you know. Die on the table or die in committee, but they got you know carried over to the short session, which is happening now. So the legislature will take up that business, those carryover bills, plus a number of limited, what we kind of call emergency bills that that are uh, getting introduced as well. So it's not as many new bills that are introduced in the shorter session. Um, there has to be deemed a need or or kind of urgency to the bill. Um, so, for example, for ours, because it's kind of a carryover piece from a larger bill we were able to pass, um, there's a sense of urgency to it because it also affects the payment practices of our child care programs. And we know that child care is an urgent matter in our state. So um, so that bill was able to get through what we call the Legislative Council, who decides what bills new bills can be heard this session so what we're seeing this short session is carryover bills and new more urgent bills that the legislative council have allowed through um, so it's not as typically as long um, where you know a session might start in a long session might start in um december uh, last year it went till july <laughs> so quite a quite a good chunk of the year it was happening um, you know typically a shorter session would be shorter, you'd probably wrap up around April is what you expect. Um, however, um, that just depends on the flow of legislation and, and how long the legislators need to do their business. Um, it also means we've set our two-year budget, that's what our, the larger bill we got passed last year, which included the increases for the wage tier stipend program, the increases for child care subsidy eligibility, increases for Head Start. So that was a larger bill of ours um, that passed, that was passed into the two-year budget um this session what they would work on is called the supplement budget so it would be um you know additions to the budget that was passed last year so it would be you know any other available money that might support programming or different legislation so um, you might hear the word supplemental budget thrown around throughout this session as well
0: okay so the two-year cycle of our of our elected officials means First, there's a long session when all the new bills are introduced (laughs) and the budget is passed. And then they get to take a break because we're a volunteer legislature (laughs) and they need to go work their actual jobs. Yeah. And then they come back for a shorter second session to just like wrap up any bills or emergencies that need to be taken care of. Yes. That's (laughs) Okay, (laughs)
1: pretty good gist. Yep. And any supplemental budget that's going to be added on to that biennial budget. Gotcha.
0: Yep. And is so like the supplemental budget, is that, does that become part of the standing budget moving forward or is that just like a
1: one-time thing? Um, It, it, it depends on the different initiatives in the budget. You might have some one-time things in the supplemental budget. You might have some ongoing program, you know, or, or state business expenses that go. A good example of that would be when we solidified Um, The child care wage stipend program that was actually done in the supplemental budget of last legislative session. So that did become, you know, an ongoing budget item. I would say in any budget, you know, there could be a process where things are taken out or proposed to be taken out. So, you know, a budget is always two years. It's good when things are in a budget, they're harder to take out once you have them in. But, um, you know, I I would say everything in a budget is always temporary and you have to make sure it's put in the budget again the following year. So supplemental budgets can certainly include things that we expect would be ongoing state funding. Gotcha.
0: Okay. So that kind of answers the question that I was going to ask next about how this legislative session is different than previous ones, but is there anything else you want to add? Like like for us for child care educators for right from the start mm-hmm. uh is there anything different about this legislative session than than the past ones
1: um the only thing that would be different is if you are supporting a carryover bill that had a hearing already in the last session so any bill that's carried over could be in different parts of the legislative process you could have a carryover bill that had the public hearing last session and now it's just moving to the committee to to decide if they're gonna vote on it and pass it out for a a House and Senate vote. Um, So in that case, you wouldn't have that hearing again. You would take the results of the hearing from last session, carry that over, and then you might be picking up supporting a bill through the committee work or through the the legislature. So your outreach might look a little different. In the case of our priority bill, um, this one will have a public hearing. So it will be very similar to last session this bill around enrollment versus um, attendance would go to the Health and Human Services Committee. Those would be the folks we do the outreach to because we want that committee to pass this bill. That's who we would testify in front of or write our testimony to. Um, And then they would convene as a committee to say, yes, we support this bill going on to the rest of the legislature to vote on, or no, we don't, or um, maybe there's an amendment they propose. So it's very similar in those pieces. So it just depends on whether you're supporting a carryover bill or not. When we enacted the wage stipends, which was a carryover bill from a long session to short session, we didn't have to go through the public hearing process again. We just had to support it through the rest of the process at that point. Gotcha.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um. So you mentioned a bunch of things that I know I could participate in, anyone in the public could participate in. And so what should educators, providers advocates and allies be preparing for this session uh to help support the priority bill
1: mm. yeah so i think the biggest thing is that storytelling piece so if you are a child care program and whether you your story is you accept subsidy but here's a hardship when you're not getting reimbursed for all those days that you you might have a private pay family uh, gives reimbursement for um Maybe your stories, I've stopped accepting subsidy or I've limited the amount of spots, you know, for children on subsidy because of these hard payment practices that make it hard to make my budget work. Um, you know, I think preparing those stories that lets legislators know that if you are going to work with families in the child care affordability program and offer these great opportunities for them and, and help them do the things they need to do, like get to work and let their child have high quality child care programming, um, you know. The business practice has to be better for the child care program. Um, We know the model of child care and trying to run a child care business is almost impossible margins to make that work. So anytime there's a slight loss of potential income that can happen sometimes in these payment practices, you know, it makes, it puts providers in a hard position to say, I want to support these families, but if I'm not getting reimbursed, you know, based off a certain rate or, or, you know a certain number of days their kid is here um i can't make it work and therefore i can't accept those families so i think for us it's you know it's really telling the stories so that your legislators understand how it affects you day to day if you're a parent or a family member you know it might be that struggle to find a program that accepts the child care affordability program we certainly hear that happening that hey i qualify i just can't find a program that can take me right now we want to be able to make the payment practices more equitable for childcare programs in comparison to their private pay tuition families so that you know there isn't this distinguishing of you know oh I can only take three children on subsidy but the rest can be private pay so if we can make that more equitable between what private pay families are paying and what subsidy is reimbursing um in those type of practices then you know hopefully we just open up more opportunities for families and they can tell that story about how lack of opportunities hurt them
0: yeah, absolutely, and so, kind of like thinking about the story you want to tell, um, and then getting ready to share that. Uh, mm-hmm. so you could write testimony, yep. Um, which you, you could. I think you can give online, or you yep. can go in person to testify in front of the committee, right? Absolutely,
1: and so one thing we try to re- be really good about at Main UIC is sharing out information about when you can submit testimony how to do that um, you know i we've in the past even done um google forms or um surveys that let you fill it out and we help you write your testimony so i um you know it would be hopeful we'll do that again this year to support folks um, but if you're looking um for testimony you know some of the nitty-gritty is everything has a legislative document number we call that an ld And then it will have a number. This piece of legislation does not have its LD yet. It's sitting in what we call the revisor's office. Those are the folks that have to really look at the language and make sure the language, you know, is legal and and, and written in in a specific form. Once it comes out of the revisor's office, it will have a number, an LD number. Um, That's what we'll start referring it to when we share out to the public. Um, And then, you know, yeah, the best thing is, you know, really to be if you especially if you live in the districts of folks on the committee so again it's the health and human services committee that would hear this bill you can find the health and human services committee um, on the main state legislature website and, and we can even share i think some of those resources out maybe with this podcast kaylena um you can find your legislator and and just reach out to them and say hey this legislative document's coming out this bill and i want you to support it and here's the reasons why and that's when you'd share your story so whether that's in the form of testimony to someone on the committee, which is always helpful, whether it's directly to your own legislators who you know would eventually vote on it if it makes it out of committee. Maybe it's your own legislator and you ask them to talk to their friends on the Health and Human Services Committee to ask them to support it. Um, that can always help too. But there's a number of ways you can reach out, um, even just phone calls. Or A lot of our um, legislators give out their cell phones uh, text is becoming a big thing now. So even texting your legislator and saying, Hey, please support this LD number. Here's why I live in your district. Um, and, and here's how I'm connected to it and and why I want it to pass. So we certainly will provide resources to help support folks with that. So I would encourage folks to follow us, you know, on our social medias and, and, uh, sign up for our e-news.
0: Okay. Yeah. So lots of ways and places to share your story. So childcare providers can tell the story of, you know i can't take subsidy because or it was really hard for me to continue taking subsidy because and then parents and and families can say it's been hard for me to find a program that takes subsidy or you know all of those things um so that's those are kind of the three stories that i'm hearing as like key narratives to help promote the bill
1: yeah yeah and i'd say you know We always get good support from the business community too, because they understand that need for affordability and availability for their, for their folks that are even working in their organizations or businesses. Um, You know, we are, you know, we did create some um, hopeful fixes to the subsidy system with the legislation last session. We're waiting for that rulemaking process um, to go through till we increased subsidy eligibility up to 125% state median income. So certainly those are things that um, businesses have jumped on board to support because they want families to be able to afford childcare that work for them. And they also want them, you know, to find that availability. So if there's some hardships, you know, in how subsidy is reimbursed or or carried out, then um, they're very supportive of fixing that for the families, you know, particularly that that are working for them. Right. If
0: parents can't get childcare. They can't go to work, which means businesses don't have employees. So it right. it's yeah. affects everybody. It's an economic issue. Yes. So I, I heard you mention the rulemaking process as you were talking there. And I'm, I'm curious to hear more about that. Like what is <laughs> the process? Because I know some people have reached out to us frustrated that child care affordability eligibility has not increased yet because that was passed last June um, and went into the budget in July. So they're like, why, why isn't it happening yet? Um, so what is kind of the whole process from bill to law to actually it happening?
1: Yeah. And this is where we get really into the weeds, right? Where it does get confusing. Um, so When you pass a bill that becomes law, you know, you do have your law. A lot of laws have to have rules. Um, I think of it in like businesses, you have policies and then you have procedures, right? So your policy is kind of like this overarching, you live by and then your procedure, you know, can change from time to time. Um, So when we pass laws um, and then rules have to be made around them, Um, you know, there's some called major substantive rules, some are um you know minor technical rules so it depends on what class category they fit in so we are going through the rulemaking process for a lot of the legislation that was passed last session i'm going to throw another layer of confusion onto this because when that larger bill was passed last session it wasn't passed by two-thirds of the legislature um the whole budget wasn't this law this law was in that budget but the budget only passed by a majority of the legislature, which means we then had a 90 day budget. So none of that programming could start or that money could be allocated until 90 days after the budget was finally signed into, into law. So it just added another delay, unfortunately. Um, So a lot of these, the bill programs will fall under the office of child and family services. So, Childcare care affordability for child care educators um, falls under that, the increased in the child care el- eligibility from 85% state median income to um, 125 state, uh, 125% state state median income falls on that as well. So they're creating the rules right now because there was that delay of the 90, days, 90 day budget. Um, plus now the rule making process takes time. So even though the law on the books had started on a certain date, they have to make the rules. Um, Part of that rulemaking process is it has to be vetted again through other offices around just making sure legal language is, is you know all there. Then it also has to come out to the public and the public has an opportunity to do a public comment and say, I love this about the rule. I wish you change this about the rule. I don't like this about the rule. Um, and then they have to comment back on all those public comments. So it might be Yes, we had seven speakers speak about this part of the rule, they would like to change it to this. And it might be a comment back like, yes, we are changing it, you know, or "or no, we're not changing it this time because. So it's a process. <laughs> so even though we enact laws, sometimes they don't happen right up front um there there does take it does take time for this rulemaking you know i am pleased there was um you know a hopeful timeline put out by the office of child and family services trying to be really transparent about this and help the field understand what what might be coming so they did give a tentative hopeful spring timeline for those laws that were enacted for the whole rulemaking process you know to get through so we'll be hopeful of that spring timeline again um you know, that rule doesn't only just sit in the office of child and family services, it has to go to other offices too. So, you know, it's all about, you know, what we call bureaucracy sometimes and, and getting through all the the things that it has to get through. So it's, it, it feels confusing, but I, I always like to think of it, you know, as, as your policy and procedure that we have laws and we have rules. <laughs> gotcha.
0: Yeah. All right. So, so yeah, there's the whole process of how it how a bill becomes a law. And then there's the once it's a law, there's the whole rulemaking process, which yes. can take a year, sometimes two, for really tricky legislation. Luckily, they're prioritizing our legislation from last year yeah. <laughs> um to get it out as quickly as possible.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it always depends too on how much has been put into law, you know, on a certain office or department. So um you know, again, there was that trickiness of a ninety days budget that delayed work that they could be doing on that. where if it had, if it had passed as a two thirds budget and started right away, they could have started quicker on the rulemaking process as well. So again, I know it's, you know, it's hard to wait for. Um, I I do appreciate, again, there was, you know, those those elements of trying to be transparent and let folks know it is coming. They're not just sitting there twiddling their thumbs, but they are working on it. They also had to hire, you know, a couple key positions um, in the office uh, to help get that work done too. So I don't, you know, doubt that they're not working hard on it and trying to get that done and, and getting that out for folks. And also I mentioned there's a this whole name change now of child care subsidy. So everything, you know, kind of a lot of these changes will sit under this bucket of this new program called the Child Care Affordability Program, which essentially was taking out, el- you know, all the elements of our subsidy program, you know, but implementing these new pieces of it too. Oh, all right. Did- That's a lot to just like, guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Welcome to the
2: weeds. (laughs) Are you thinking about going back to school to get your early childhood education degree? Maine AEYC and the Office of Child and Family Services wants to make it happen for you. We are proud to facilitate the TEACH scholarship program so that early childhood educators throughout the state can go back to school to get their associate or bachelor's degree with most expenses covered.
3: The TEACH program is unique because it's a partnership between you, Maine AEYC, and your employer. Together, we all work to ensure that you can successfully meet your career and educational goals. If you get a TEACH scholarship, Maine AEYC pays for 85% of your tuition costs, your employer pays for 7.5%, and you are only responsible for the remaining 7.5% of your tuition cost. For those seeking their associate degree, that's an average of only $260 per year that you must pay out of pocket.
2: Exactly, Tony. You can get your degree through the Teach Scholarship program for very little money and without having to take out loans. It's such a phenomenal program to support early childhood educators throughout Maine. In addition to funding your tuition, Teach recipients are paid for two hours a week of release time so that they can study without losing pay from work or time from their families. The scholarship provides a stipend each term and the scholarship pays for 85% of your book costs. The scholarship provides so much to its recipients.
3: And in addition to all of those benefits, Teach Scholarship recipients get one-on-one counseling and support from a Maine AEYC staff member to ensure that they can successfully complete their program.
2: It's so simple to apply for a Teach Scholarship. Go to maineayc.org application and download the application to your computer. After that, it should only take about 30 minutes to fill out the form and apply.
3: Again, that's mainauic.org slash application. M A I N E A E Y C dot org slash application. Apply for a teach scholarship today and get back into the classroom to get your degree.
0: So that's kind of our pri- priority bill, and then mm-hmm. also why our priority bills from last year have not necessarily come into being yet. Yeah. Um are there any other bills that should be on folks' radars that that will affect childcare or children or families?
1: Yeah. One piece I didn't talk a lot about in this priority legislation, there's also a line in there about starting um kind of an emergency um funding opportunity for childcare programs so that if your program was going through some sort of financial hardship, um Again, this would be a law that then they would create rules for. Um, but that there's some funding available to support a childcare program. Um, you know, if a financial hardship was happening, that they maybe could access, you know, maybe a type of grant program or however that would be structured in rules, um, so that they wouldn't, you know, be closing their doors. You know, we we don't want programs because, you know, a boiler blows um, and, and there's no way to avoid fixing that. Um you know, that maybe could there be some temporary um, funding there that would support a financial hardship and that we could help keep those child care programs operating. Um, again, knowing that not a lot of childcare programs are able to beef up those savings or, um, you know, have that, that cash flow on hand or, you know, can even endure sometimes taking out high interest loans or those type of things to support when emergency situations pop up.
0: So is that part of the, the bill that you were talking about?
1: Okay. Yep, yeah, And that would be in with this same piece of legislation. So the bill will include enrollment versus attendance, reimbursement for subsidy and an emergency fund for childcare programs. Gotcha.
0: Okay. So much can be included in one initiative. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's that additional piece, any other legislation to have on our radars?
1: Yeah, I think one, another one that um we've been working at Maine OAC, you know, with closely with um, particularly Head Start programs is around fingerprinting and how do we best align fingerprinting across DOE and DHHS, because certainly as we're seeing more public pre-K partnerships grow, sometimes, you know, that um, fingerprinting becomes a barrier because you have one set you have to do for DOE, one set you have to do for DHHS, some of it is federal regulatory um, barriers, but is we're hoping through this legislation we can work out how to better align those at the state level too. Um, you know, if I'm going in and I need my DOE and DHHS fingerprinting and background check, I literally have to make two appointments at the same place and take up two spots. Um, it is also hard to get spots because people are trying to get in and get their fingerprints. So, you know. How would I be able to just go get one spot, put my fingerprints down once, and 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 would they be accepted by both uh, department at that point? So uh, there's some things that will have to be worked out through that, but that's some legislation that you know is hopefully going to help us figure out some of those barriers and help us solve some of those problems.
0: Yeah, that would make everyone's life easier. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. and I, you know, I, I do, a, I, I do put out a caveat. No state has solved this yet. Um, you know, Vermont did pass legislation that. A school department um, could opt in and do all the DHHS background checks, um, you know. But that was a voluntary program. Um, you know, there's a different level of checks that you have to have under DOE versus DHHS. Again, those are federal regulations, not because of state requirements. So, um, you know, how to make it easier? You know, we're also looking at folks who work at child developmental services who have their background checks under the DOE system. Um, however, when they come into licensed child care programs, they're not technically legally fingerprinted under that DHHS system, right? So there's just some weird um, unfortunate licensing things going on there that that might need to be figured out um, since licensing does require the DHHS checks. So it's just a little messy and can we fix it?
0: It is interesting too, because I, I was a public school teacher, but my, Mm -hmm. my two teaching uh, licenses for the state of Maine, um, included one that was the 081 which is mm-hmm. birth through age five right. um, and so that clearly falls into child care and yet <laughs> it's a doe uh teaching license That's <laughs> so i'm yeah. just now thinking
1: i'm like hmm, do i do i need to get another fingerprint i don't know yeah. Yeah. And if you're thinking of people working across these two systems, as often again, we see probably, you know, more frequently with our Head Start partners, but also as we're seeing more public pre-K partnerships arise and you have now public pre-K teachers that are employed by private child care programs, but they're sitting under a child care license under DHHS, they're having to get these multiple checks. And then you start to get into, okay, what's my five year, you know, um, you know, re re fingerprinting schedule. Now I have to go multiple times because I have to do this one every five years and this one every five years, you know, and, and just, again, we don't know what that breakdown is of, you know, why you have to book two appointments when it's the same scan of fingerprints, you know, is that an FBI thing that's happening? So, you know, this legislation, I think can dig into some of that and help us, you know, come out with some answers, or maybe at least research it a little more. Um, I know there's an awareness at the the federal level. um, And I've heard from folks that it's a it's a conversation had because there is you know it, it it essentially does stem overall from a federal level but there could potentially be things we can work on in the state to you know if even if it just starts with doe could accept the DHHS background checks um to support some of that so it's not duplicating efforts
0: yeah it would save everyone time and money and headaches
1: yeah. and <laughs> Yeah. It seems very reasonable to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially when we're talking about, you know, it, it's tough to get those fingerprinting spots sometimes too. It's hard to make those appointments because I know, you know, they're it's often understaffed at the places where we go to get our fingerprints done too. So I've heard of folks even driving two hours and then getting there and the place was closed because no one came in that day. Um, so you know, we're even having just some hardships in, in the access of getting those background checks so hopefully those are conversations we can have through this legislation as well
0: does that one have an ld number
1: yet yeah it's ld 2107 okay. and so yeah i will say the um public hearing is on wednesday january 24th at 10 a.m and that will be in the education and cultural affairs committee
0: and is that public hearing um accessible on zoom as well if people can't make it to the state house
1: Yes, so you can go on on zoom. And um, if you go to the main page of the state legislature, um, there's usually at the bottom of the page where you can put in the LD number sign up to testify online. Um, And if you want to do it on zoom or submit um, written testimony, you can do it right there through those links. And again, I think these are links we can share out too, along with the podcast.
0: Yeah, I'll definitely put this stuff in the show notes. And if you are subscribed to us in our e-news, you will see it there as well. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, so that's kind of all of the questions that I had shared and that came up while you were talking. But um, is there anything else you want to touch on or or make sure people know Mm -hmm. as we head into this session?
1: Yeah, I would say if people, you know, if you've never reached out to a legislator before or never participated in a public hearing or if you're having some angst about how to do this, but you really do want to be involved, you know, please reach out to me. Um, We want to support folks in doing this. Um, We also have folks as part of our um, leadership program, our LEAP program that have, you know, now testified many times that are always willing to help out uh, fellow peers in the field as well. So just don't hesitate to reach out if it's an area where you want to explore and, and you want your voice to be heard, but maybe you just don't know what those steps are and you would like a little more one-on-one support, we're happy to do that.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for coming and chatting.
2: Uh,
0: I am excited to see what happens this legislative session. I know last last legislative session in 2023, it felt like there was so much energy and momentum around childcare um, across like all of the state and all kinds of different people. So I hope that we can continue moving
1: things forward to make... <laughs> this system better for everyone. I totally agree. And yeah, and people getting those personal stories out there are really what helps move that needle and keep, you know, keep childcare, um, you know, not just barriers even, but even successes out there in the public, um, you know, sharing those stories of what's working well is is also an important piece too. So um, while we still have more work to do, a lot has also been done. So um, helping legislators know what's what's helping you along the way, um, you know, as well as what barriers still exist that we can help overcome is is very important. So keep speaking up and keep sharing.
0: Yeah. And, and I always try and remind people when they're feeling frustrated, because a lot of things are frustrating um, in this industry. <laughs> um, but I try and remind people that Maine is really leading the way in a lot of ways on child care. Um, A lot of the policies that we've adopted and laws we've created in the past several years are the first in the nation. Um,
1: So things still need to get better, but they're not as bad as they could be. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's always, you know, a nice thing when we can get educators out talking with folks from other states when they start to hear those stories and say, okay, yes, we know we have work to do, and this is hard, and we don't ever want to undervalue how hard this work is, um, you know, just because we are doing better than other states, but it is kind of nice to hear that the collective efforts are working, and, and that we are, you know, leading a lot of other states and Things like strengthening our subsidy program and, and building on wages for childcare educators. Um, we're doing programming that, you know, most other states are not doing. So it, it's great to lead in that way, but also, you know, realize we're also leading from a space that's been significantly undervalued and underfunded um, for many years. So when you're leading something that's been so undervalued and underfunded, um, you know, you, you know you're not there yet and that you still have a long way to go. Absolutely. So
0: subscribe to our e-news, follow us on social media, email Heather or I, and we will we will get our voices heard as a field um, and as a people for the need to improve child care. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you so much, Heather. Hey, thanks for listening. You've just finished another episode of One, Two, Three, All Ears on Me, an early childhood education podcast produced by the Maine Association for the Education of Young Children. You can learn more about us at maineaeyc.org. That's M-A-I-N-E-A-E-Y-C.org. This episode was recorded, produced, and edited by me, Kalina Mills. Until next time.